Thanks for listening to the New Life Church Searcy podcast. If you'd like to get connected to what God is doing at the Searcy campus, you can text the word Searcy to 88000. There you can give online, get connected to a life group, find your place in a serve team, and so much more. You can also find today's message notes in the YouVersion Bible app. Just tap the link in the episode description to follow along during the sermon and save notes directly to your phone. Now prepare your hearts to hear a great word from God today. So today as we look into the scripture and we look into Ezekiel, I want you to think and I want you to consider something with me and that is this topic of hunger. And so I want you to think for just a moment what it's like to be hungry. Now, I'm not talking about 3 p.m. in the afternoon hungry. I'm talking about haven't eaten in a week hungry, okay? So think, think about that. A lot of you have never been hungry for a week um, because you live in a first world and food is very accessible to you. And so if you've ever fasted, you know this feeling, the things that you go through, uh, physiologically, mentally, spiritually, when, when you fast. But I want you to think about that feeling, the ache of hunger. Now, I want you to add to that a layer. I want you to imagine that your kid has been that hungry. And I want you to imagine them coming to you and saying, Daddy, I'm hungry, all right? And you know what they're feeling because you feel it yourself. So I want you to imagine this type of hunger that is different than you going and getting a snicker bar. This is like the kind of hunger that you would kick down a door to get your kid a sandwich. Like desperation leads to doing desperate things. And so when you watch the news or you read an article or you listen to a podcast and they talk about, can you believe this person broke into this store and they stole 20 bucks and some some you know tuna salad from the freezer section? Yeah, I can. If they've been hungry for a week, that's desperation. And desperate people will do desperate things. Desperate people will hurt other people. Desperate people will, will do things that you would not think that they would do. But when your kid is saying, I am hungry, you will move heaven and earth. You'll get a second job, a third job. You'll do whatever you need to do to provide for the need that is there. Now, take that and equate that to your spiritual hunger. Take that and see if there's ever been a time in your life where you've been that hungry for the things of God. Think about if there's ever been a time in your life where you've said, man, I gotta have more of God. I need this. I want this. I'm gonna set things aside. I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna knock. I'm gonna seek I'm going to do all of the things that I am craving to do just in the hopes that I can be with God for just a moment of time. This is what it means to be spiritually hungry. However, in the modern church, we are fighting back the commonness of God to make him extremely common, not sacred, nothing special, humdrum. We are fighting to remove the awe of him because we've already filled our stomachs with other things. And that, that's a different sermon. 
But the truth is, we fight all of the time in the modern church to bring the awe of God back into it. I think what we're seeing around the country by another generation is them capturing, maybe even for the first time, the awe of God, the genuineness of God, and saying, I want that in my life. I want that to lead me. And so when you're looking at these hours and hours and hours of singing or worship or prayer or repentance, you're seeing the all of God return to a people group. And because of that, his presence is dwelling and staying there. But we lose the awe of God all of the time and in all kinds of areas, right? We can lose the awe of God for a person or, or the awe in a person. You can lose the awe in your spouse. I want you to think about when you first started dating that person who you love and you think about the first time you held hands, the first time you put your arm around them, and oh man, your heart rate went up, and man, you were just in awe of them, and every little thing they said, you just hung on to it. And now 10, 20, 30 years later, you don't even talk at a meal anymore, you know? It's like the biggest takeaway is, where do you think these croutons, you know, what, what brand do you think these are? We gotta pick up a bag of these for home. You know, you, 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 you lose the splendor of it because of time that you've put into that particular relationship. And we can do the exact same thing with God. Think about when you first gave your heart to Christ. We, we have a phrase for this in church world. It's called being on fire, right? We, we uh, experience something and we go, man, that person's on fire for God. Look, look at them. And, and you just see the zeal of God on them and how their life has changed and how they talk differently and they act differently and everything that they do. And, you know, they're talking about faith and their journey and they're forgiving people really fast. And it's like they just want to get everything right so that they can just follow Jesus. You're like, man, person's on fire for God. But there's a temptation, again, that after 10, 20, 30 years of following Christ, it's very easy for, for you. It's very easy for me, and I'll give an example of that in just a minute, to just lose the uncommonness of God, how amazing he is, how holy he is, how great he is, the honey on the tongue, the taste and see that he's good and he's sweet. Let me put us all on level ground with some familiar biblical examples of how quickly you can lose awe. The children of Israel had a pillar of fire over them. Okay, I, I want you to think about this. A pillar of fire, and it served many, many things. You know, theologians talk about how in the desert night, it would have been cold, and so this pillar of fire provided some heat, much like the, the sun would upon them, and it would, it would keep them sheltered, and it was also directional. They would follow it and know where to, where to go. And that pillar of fire became very common to them. As a matter of fact, the, the miracles that were wrought in, that, in, the, in those years, those decades of going in circles became very, very common, like, you know, bread falling from the sky. Well, now we don't want that. We, we want some meat, okay? Water coming from a rock, you know, and this wasn't like a water fountain, you know, where everybody steps up to it and puts their Yeti cup under it. You know, this was like a river runs through it, right? It had to provide water for a million people. So, I mean, this, this is miracles, Upon miracle, upon miracle. And it just was very, very common. So this pillar of fire to them 
became just as common as us going out in your backyard tonight and seeing the moon. You just, you look at it and you go, yeah, that's the moon. It's no big deal. It's here all the time. Became very, very common. King Saul, um, in, in his reign, keep, keep in mind that priest and king served together. And so king took on all of the power dy- dynamics, the protection of a kingdom, the, uh, the, the unity of it. Uh, the strength of it, the expansion of it, all those things. Priests took on all the spiritual roles. Well, Saul was going to provide a sacrifice and the priest was running late. And so basically he said, hey, I've seen this done. So I'm gonna step in and do what the priest did and I'm gonna sacrifice. And he did. And the Lord was so displeased with him because he's like, stay in your lane, man. Like, you're, you're the king. I've provided both roles. Both roles have to work in tandem. You stay king. He'll stay priest. Do not put your hands on the priestly stuff. But to him, he had seen it. He had seen it done. He had participa- participated in it over and over and over again. So he said, this is nothing. I can do this. And the holy became very common. Okay? The people of Nazareth in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is doing amazing miracles He's in full swing, ministry is peaking, and they look at him and they go, we know you, like you are Mary and Joseph's son. We, we don't know what to tell you, man. I mean, we just don't know that, that we're buying into this, that you're the savior, because you used to play with my son. So I don't know what you want us to do here. And I want you to imagine this, like there's a crowd and Jesus is teaching and they say, hey, what's going on over there? And somebody in Nazareth says, don't worry, it's just Jesus. And I wonder if that's some language of the modern church now that we look at things and we look at, and it, we, it's so common, we're just like, that's just Jesus. That's just, you know, it, let, let it go, he'll, he'll move on to the next city, don't, don't worry about it. It may look weird, it may look like move of God, presence of God, revival of God, whatever you want to call it, but let's don't honor it. You know, it's no big deal, okay? And so in Ezekiel chapter 44 and verse 23, Ezekiel's very punchy, but he's talking about retraining the people of God, and he says this to them. They are to teach my people the difference between the holy and the common, Okay? Now, if you take that down just a little bit and you say, well, if, if there's common and he says holy, then holy would be uncommon, okay? So the difference between the uncommon and the common, I want you to tell them there's a, there's a line there. Tell them that there's something more when they meet with me. Tell them there's more to it than just a physical experience, This is more than just their senses. This is an inward work of my presence on the soul of mankind. It's something that cannot be seen necessarily with physical eyes or smelt or has a taste to it or you can't put your hand on it. It is something that sits in the soul and bubbles its way out and works its way. It permeates through our entire existence, and become something amazing. But teach them that there is a difference between uncommon things and common things. And again, in our humanity, 
the more we experience something, the more we dial down its uncommonness and we make it common, all right? And so when we look at this, it's easy for us in a modern world to come and go in and out of church, to come in and sit in a common chair that's the same color every week, drink common coffee that's the same brand every week, to listen to the same communicator every single week, to hear a worship team every week where check-in is the same, the parking lot is the same. It's a common experience. But what it's supposed to be is when we come together in the presence of God, it's transformational. It's supposed to be that once we come together, it's not about chairs and podium and communicator and check-in and coffee. It's about the uncommonness of the whole reason we're here. So it gets to be very easy to go, I'm going to go and do this thing, and yet we leave, and sometimes we've never even worshiped. Like, like we get up, and we get showered, and we get dressed, and we get the kids ready, and we get them here, and we come in here, and then we've got this experience, and sometimes you leave and find yourself at Colton's wondering what was even done. You're like, what did he even talk about today? Why? Because it's common. It's routine. I remember, this is the time when it happened with me. When we started this nine years ago, we were in a carpet store across town. I don't know how many of you went, went there. If you did, I'm very sorry. You had to love that church to go there. Because it was impossible to park. When it poured down rain, it was awful. Um, we had three toilets in the whole building. One was always broke, so really we had two. And it was just awful. I mean, the experience was, but there was a sweet presence there. Okay? And so as we begin to grow, and of course the building was much smaller, but we, we had a 10 o'clock and then we had to break that up and do a 9.30 and 11. And then we had to break that up and we did an 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And we did that for about 18 months before we moved over here. And there were several Sundays, this is just my experience, I'd come out of the gate 8.30. Man, I was ready to go, ready to preach, ready to see everybody. And so, you know, for a pastor, it's Super Bowl. This is Super Bowl Sunday every Sunday. And so you, you're, you're talking, you're, you're speaking, you're, you're trying to be led by the Spirit. And at 8.30, great, okay, done, flip, flip the service, clean the sanctuary, clean the bathrooms, 10 o'clock crowd comes in, same thing. By 11.30, you want to go home. Like you're like, do we have to do this again? And as a communicator, you've already said the same thing twice. So your mind plays tricks on you. So you go to speak and your mind's going, you already said that. Hey, hey, you've already said, hey, dummy, you just said that. And you get caught in this thing. And I remember the last six months of that, it was like that 1130 service, it, it was just common. Like you, we lost the awe of it. We lost the awe of what was happening, of that particular crowd specifically. Was to go, this would be so much easier if we had two services. And it was like I had to get this rebuke from the Lord to go, hey, during this season, you better steward this and get your attitude right and come back to seeing this for what it is. And we can do this with anything. We can do it with a myriad of things. But let me talk to you for a moment about, about this. This is, this is the one thing, and I may not preach beyond this one point today. But God 
needs to be known, not just experienced. He needs to be known. And scripture teaches this and even trumps it. Okay, I'm gonna show you that in just a second. But let me tell you what I'm, what I'm talking about. When God has to be known. It's talking about intimacy, okay? It, it's like, if I ask you, do you, do you know your spouse, okay? You would say, sure I do, I know them. But it doesn't mean like here. It means like, I know, like I'm, I have a connection with you, okay? So for some of you, your spouse steps into a room and peace settles there. It's like nothing gets said, nothing gets, you know, spoken. There's, no, there's nothing that's really put together, and, but yet you feel something. There's no language going on, but something is there because there is, is knowing between you. It's very intimate and just their presence brings something special to your life, okay? That is what he's talking about. He's not talking about head knowledge. He's not saying because you can quote five scriptures. He's not saying because you can theologically break something down into appropriate hermeneutics or homiletics or you know Greek or Hebrew. He's not talking about those things. He's saying, do you know me? And what I think God is revealing to his people in these days right now is the importance of us not just having a good experience, and I love good experiences, but to walk away from that experience and to know God, right? When I grew up, we grew up having what was called revivals, okay? Anybody else grew up having revivals? Anybody? Where's my Baptist people? I know y'all had revivals, all right. Revival was simply this. It was having a guest of some sort, and they came in, and for two or three days, you'd have service, you know, night after night after night, and, and the goal was to give you an experience, like to re-motivate you, to get you focused again, to have worship, and in the course of those two or three nights, you'd have what was called a potluck. You do not want to be a part of that, and, but was, people would bring mystery meals, okay, and so you'd have to go around and say, is this so-and-so's, you know, turkey and dressing, and, and then and you would you would dive into that, but you left somebody else's completely alone. You might know what I'm talking about. Okay, you got to stay away from sister so-and-so's turkey and dressing. And But we would have these meals together, and we would have an experience, and so we would fellowship and hang out and have church night after night after night after night, and it was just a pointed directional focus upon let's get back to being evangelistic or giving our heart to God. Let's recommit our lives back to Christ, etc. And there were so many things that involved that. There's a lot of tradition involved in that. And, but our point growing up, we developed a culture addicted to experiences. So the experience became much more important than us actually knowing and being intimate with the Father. So we had these addiction experiences that then created the temptation to create more and more and more experiences. So the way I grew up was, you had church on Sunday morning, and then you had church when? And then when? Okay, and then Bible study on what night? Uh, you didn't go to Bible study? Okay. No, we, we, we'd have like a Tuesday night prayer meeting. And then we'd play softball on Saturday, and if you've ever played softball with Christians, you know you're glad the next day is Sunday, because everybody had to give their heart back to God for what happened on the softball field on Saturday night. 
And so these experiences were, you know, were great. I like back on them. I'm fond of them. But here's what I realized is that we were producing a lot of stories and a lot of experiences. But out of that was not these, these, these times where we gained a knowing of the Father from being intimate with him. And I believe that's where the transformational change in our lives sets in, is when we get invaded by the presence of God. And it's not just come in, check your kids in, grab a cup of coffee, hear me for a few minutes, let's sing a song and get out of here. But it's, it's that point of going, God, I want to know you. I want to be in your presence. I don't know if you remember the conversation in Matthew chapter seven, but this is a, is a big chunk right here, okay? Matthew chapter seven is the story where it says that many will say, Lord, we, we did some good works in, in your name, okay? Now, I'm, I'm gonna parallel this for a minute. Lord, we did some good things, okay? We raised some people from the dead. We cast out some demons, Let's start adding things, okay? We fed people, we clothed people, we sheltered people, we did, we did, we did, we did, we did. And the point there is we are creating experiences, but what does he say in return? And I will say unto them, I do not know you. Again, it's not like a visual know know you. It's not like you're a stranger. It's not like you're even an acquaintance. It's not that word, no. It's the no. It's not no, it's I don't know you. This is what he wants from us. To know him. Okay? Let me give you Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 10, he says, His intent was that now, watch this, through his church, that you would know the manifold wisdom of God. Okay, now that, that word manifold is an important one because it means just the way it sounds, many-fold, many-sided. And so he's saying this, when you look at God and you see him from one lens, okay, when you look at God and you see him through one thin piece of paper, one angle, one view, one take, you're missing it because he's saying God is many-folded, many-sided. And when you get one part figured out, he reveals something new about himself. And you get that part figured out and he reveals something new. Why? Because he's many-folded, many-sided. And he's saying, so don't make him common. Don't make him like something you can fold up and stick in your pocket. He says, through his church, he's going to reveal that to you. This is why the church is so important. Because it's where we understand the manifold wisdom. This word is no to know the many sides of God, to know the many folds of God, it will be revealed how? Through his people, through you and me, through you and me being together, through you and me being in small groups, through you and me praying over each other, through you and and I communicating about our love for him and hearing testimonies and talking to each other and baptizing and singing songs of worship and going through the way that that churches do. He said, that's where you're gonna find the knowledge of me. That's where you're gonna get to know me is in those moments. Let me share something personal, but the first time that I was really ever tempted to take God and make him common was when I had the first major loss in my life, okay? 
I'm talking about losing a person, like a major loss. And when this happened to me, something in me broke. It's still sometimes to this day difficult to put into words to tell people about it, but I just know that something in me was well and then it wasn't well. And the temptation that the enemy came at me, me with was this temptation to say, this is how common your God is. Like, he was the answer for you and he chose not to come. He was your connection to this all being right and he did nothing. So how uncommon is he? These were the things that were in my head and they were not my own thoughts. I mean, it was spiritual warfare, if you believe in that. Just lies. It was so heavy on me that I could not preach for months. And here's why. Because I would feel like a fraud. Not not hypocritical, but fraudulent. Like, how can I get up and talk right now and teach and empty myself on any topic related to anything when I am doubting most of what I believe. And so this commonness and uncommonness, we are tempted to build this around our own experiences and our own stories. And I will warn you about that this morning. Don't let your life's story dictate the importance and the relevance of the word and his presence in your life. People walk away from the church every day because they believe exactly the lie that Satan was telling me. He's just common. He chose to do nothing. And some of your stories, you could easily sway into that that filter and you need to get a hold of it because you're telling yourself, if God really loved me, he would have blank. He would have changed this He would have turned that. He would have rescued this. He would have healed them. He would have restored that. He would have prevented that. He would have, he would have, he would have, he would have. And what you do is you dial down the awe of God. I believe, and again, this is just me. I believe sometimes that's how adults get stuck, right? Because life deals you some hard things that you didn't get when you were 15. But now that you're 50, you got a few scars. And it's so much easier for you to just sit back and go, yeah, let's let this new generation get excited about God and let's just, let's just cruise. Let's just try to get through it, you know? I want to see God restore the awe of God in every single person in here. To come back to wanting his presence to lingering there, to desiring transformational change and saying, God, this is so much more than coffee and check-ins and chairs. I want to be with your people and I want to feel your presence move in my life. I want you to stand with me today. I'm going I'm to wrap this up. I want to read today, just just an excerpt, really, really quickly, from Psalm 33. 
David says this. He says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And then he ends it by saying, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. One, one version says, we wait in hope for the Lord. Okay? So he says, I want the whole world to stand in awe of God, to recapture it, to come back to the zeal of what it really means to love God, to have him in, in, in your life. In some way, we all believe this, right? Because you would not come here every Sunday for coffee. You come here because you believe that there's something deeper and richer and fuller because he's in your life. And David said, I want the whole world to stand in awe of God. And then he goes on and says, we wait in hope. And if you just look at the order of, of, this, of this psalm, it means this. You cannot wait in hope until you have first stood in awe. Like once you get it that he's God and he loves you and this whole thing is about you, then you're full of hope and you're waiting in it for the next great thing to happen, for the next door to open, for the next time that we're, that we're together. You're waiting for your answer to come. You're waiting on something to spin in your favor. Why? Because you're in awe of him. And now you wait in hope. And that's where some of you need, need to be today. You are hanging on with a, on, onto a rope that you've tied a knot in and you're tired and you're exhausted by it. And you are waiting, but you are not waiting in hope. Because the enemy has lied to you. And you have dialed down the awesomeness of God. Fight that today. Fight that today. Father, I love you. I pray over our church today. Every person in the room. I pray over every single person in the room. God, there are those today exhausted, hanging on to the, to the rope, hanging on. Well, there are those today who have lost their awe of you. Life's been hard. They need to be refreshed and they need to be restored to your presence and that's what I pray for. I pray that whatever you're doing with this moving of your presence, Lord, don't pass us by. Come to us. You are welcome here, Lord. So we worship you. Can we do that for just a minute? Will you just reach your heart out to the Lord, God, right now? Whatever's in there, it may be broken into a million pieces. Just give it to the Lord. God, right now, just give it all. I'll give it all. I open my heart to you, Lord.
God, we drink from your cup today. We drink from your cup. As we go into worship today, can we just, can we lift our hands in this room today? Come on. Will you do that with me? We just lift your hand to the Father, God, right now. We just worship you. We adore you. Come on, just lift up the name of Jesus. God, we give you thanks.